Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. For lunch, and we want to thank Country Kitchen Catering for again rising to the occasion with 147 lunches. Thank you. Thank you, Tasha. Okay, just to let you know, next week <clears throat> is our Merry Christmas week. So December 18th, we will have uh, a talk by Dr. Hillary Rodriguez. And the topic is Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. What term should we use? Okay, now I hope you've had stimulating discussion at your tables. And please, let's welcome Brian Keating back. And I'll ask you to line up at the mic with your questions. And give your and please give your name first. You know what I didn't get a chance to do is to show you. Uh, you know when I was developing that hippo sanctuary, I had uh, uh, I had a uh, a new director at the Calgary Zoo, and he didn't quite get it. He didn't quite understand why I was involved in this overseas project. So I I talked to the chiefs that asked me to be involved in the development of that hippo sanctuary and that and I told them my potential problem that if I lose the support of my zoo director then I lose my opportunity to continue working with the Wachau Hippo Sanctuary. So they thought about it for a few days and then they came back to me and they said, "Ah, Mr. Brian, we have an answer for you and your problem." And this is where I just love these people that come from different cultures. They said to me, uh, Mr. Brian, we are going to take a big man and we are going to make him bigger. In other words, we're going to take your boss and we're going to put him on a pedestal so that everybody is watching him. And he can't afford to make a mistake. Isn't that fabulous? So so I organized a, a way to get him over to Africa and he knew he was going to be uh, made into an honorary chief. And so we ran a safari together in Botswana, which was fabulous. And then we went off to Ghana together. And in front of about 600 villagers with goats running that way and chickens running that way and kids crying over there and drummers over there and and uh, punctuated with political speech after political speech. And, uh, and, and uh, then we had, we had this indoctrination. Now, they, they made him into a chief. And that when they told me they were going to do that, uh, they said that they were going to make me into a chief too. And I said, no, 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 don't make me into a chief because I don't want any of the limelight taken away from my boss. He's the one I'm worried about. And they said, oh, no, Mr. Brian, we are going to make you into a chief too because we know you do all the work, but we are going to make you into a smaller chief. <laughs> so, so after they made him into a chief, then they brought me up and they gave me the same... Uh, rigmarole, but let me let me show you the outfit that they put on. <laughs> okay, that's but that's part one. 
And actually, I'm skipping a part in between. They put on another smock underneath this. And remember, this is the hottest environment that I've ever known. And, you know, I've always been proud of our Canadian cold weather heritage. You know, when it gets to negative 10, we feel good. When it next gets to negative 20, we're out there playing street hockey. But uh, in this part of the world, let me tell you, heat is, is there like you've never known it because the humidity is really hot, too. So, but let me show you. They put a hat on me, of course. And then, and, and I have to tell you too, don't ever tell my old boss this, but he's quite overweight. And, and when I watched him being dressed up with this, I saw his face turn Christmas red. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to be bringing back my boss in a box. And so I kept, I kept giving him water and making him drink. And later on, he confessed to me. He said, Brian, all my body fat went into my boots. But let me, let me show you the boots. Beautiful hand woven, handmade. Uh, these are called chief's riding boots because uh, when you ride the horse, you don't want that hand embroidery to rub, rub off. So polished white leather on the other side. Isn't that fabulous? And so, so we put these on and they gave us pants too. And I'll show you the pants. I'm not going to put them on because it takes me an hour to get in them, into them. But uh, let me show you how big they are. It's, the nice thing about these pants is that one size fits all. <laughs> I said to my wife, honey, this is perfect. Now we can get into each other's pants at the same time. <laughs> but you know, you know what was amazing about this whole exercise? Uh, I didn't really get along with that particular boss, and, and he would know that, he, you know, he wouldn't mind. He would understand if he knew that I was telling you that. He's now retired. He lives in central Alberta. But um, he's, in a, he's amazing because he so got onto this business of helping the Wachau Hippo Sanctuary, and helping one sanctuary is good, but what we wanted to do is take the template that we developed with the Wachau Hippo Sanctuary and manufacture that throughout Africa so that the same model could be followed so that more areas could be protected. And, uh, and he's taken this to heart, and, and he's never forgotten that he's an honorary chief, which means he has many people uh, in his village in Africa. And, uh, and he phoned me up about six months ago, and he said, Brian, through his rot local rotary and the international rotary who matched the funds, and the zoo who matched the funds as well, he's raised $60,000 to rebuild that mud tourist lodge. Isn't that amazing? So, and I've got, a very, I've got a very trusted friend. I'm good friends with Jane Goodall. She told me years ago, she said, if you're ever going to do any kind of, of, of work in, in, develop, in the developing world, you've got to trust the people you give the money to like your brother. And I've got a very, very good friend in West Africa, and he's the guy that's been running all the money through. And he's the guy that, we, that hired the, the uh, construction companies to build the two schools. We've since built a clinic and, of course, the teachers' houses. And, uh, and, it's, and now he's going to be in charge of – he's already come up with a preliminary design for the new uh, tourist lodge. But, uh, so someday if you ever go over there and, and stay at Wichau, you don't have to sleep in a mud, in a mud hut, uh, which has its own appeal, believe me. But uh, the problem with the mud huts is that uh, scorpions and spitting cobras could get in too. So uh, now, now we're going to have a lodge that makes it so none of those creepy crawlies can get in. Because for some reason, pink people from Alberta don't like that stuff. 
But anyway, that's that's a, a, another part. And I have to tell you, too, we had these chiefs over to Calgary to open up our hippo exhibit at the Calgary Zoo years ago. And uh, <clears throat> I, when I brought them over, first of all, I thought it was a pipe dream to bring them over because I figured, how are you going to get <clears throat> visas and passports for people that are that live in the bush that were raised in a mud hut. But it worked, and they did it with such style. And I, I, I phoned up three friends of mine uh, to sell them a chief. I needed six grand per chief to bring them over. And I couldn't turn the tap off. Before I knew it, I had like 25 grand in donations to bring these chiefs over. They lit Alberta up. They got on the front page of the Herald, the front page of the Sun. They were on all the major news networks. Uh, and I took. they wanted to see a mall. Which I think, personally, is one of our most disgusting attributes of our first world nation. And I took it, so I took them to the worst mall in Calgary, Chinook. And I, it was amazing. They were dressed in their chief, chieftaincy regalia. We walked in through those doors. I felt like I was walking with rock stars. Every, everybody parted, and people were yelling, Welcome to Canada, chiefs, because everybody knew them. And, and, of course, they just figured, well, of course they're known, because doesn't the world know who they are? <laughs> and, and then we had an event down at the Stampede when we brought them back several years later, which was just a couple of years ago. And, and our prime minister from Canada, you, remember, you may know who he is. <laughs> anyway, he was there, because he has something to do with Calgary. I forget what it is. But uh, he was there, and, and I had the chiefs at a big function. And uh, our prime minister was going around shaking hands. So, I, of course, I got the chiefs up. I was dressed in my outfit, and the chiefs were dressed in theirs. And I did a rapid-fire elevator you know, summary to our prime minister of who the chiefs were. And he looked at me blankly and said, they sure look a lot better dressed in their regalia than you do. <laughs> so, uh, contrary to the popular belief, he has no sense of humor. There is a glimmer of humor there. Oh, we have questions. Sorry, I could go on forever. Okay, so we're going to go over to the questionnaires, and we're going to ask you, please state your name and keep your questions brief. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Madam Chair. Uh, my name is Joseph Natuk. Uh, very interesting and impressive presentation. Uh, I'm a professional wildlife biologist, and I'm just you know, curious to hear, well, I was very curious to hear what you had to say. However, I, I'm just wondering how you can relate Alberta... Canada, North America, to what you just said regarding conservation and the impacts and what we're doing for the environment, the ecosystems, and biodiversity. Well, I guess what I, what, what I really wanted to focus on was the fact that, that we have to regard our wild landscapes with, with more honor, with more recognition uh, to their intrinsic value. That's really the basis of today's story. And uh, when, when I look at, at some of the wildlife concentrations, like in the Serengeti, I was there just a few months ago. Uh, we saw, on one drive, we probably saw 10,000 wildebeest, and there was another 2 million that were waiting just across the border in Tanzania to come into the Masai Mara. In. And you think about that, okay, 2 million wildebeest, there were 60 million bison that lived here a couple of hundred years ago that would move through this area. Uh, up from the United States into Canada and back down. We, we, by some estimates, maybe 40 million pronghorn antelope. And uh, by other estimates, maybe 10 million elk. On a good day's ride out of what is now swift current, one, one uh, uh, 
a rider about 100 years ago, what is now called Swift Current. He, he did a one-day ride. He counted 27 grizzly bears. When they were focusing in with the, with the scopes, with the uh, uh, transect lines, to put the Trans Canada in just this side of Medicine Hat, there was two grizzly bears feeding on uh, uh, blueberries just across, just across the way, Saskatoons. And uh, so, boy, you think about that. You think about what was here. Let's never forget the kind of abundance that this place supported. And let's cherish the remaining areas that we have left. Let's not let them all slip into oblivion. Let's not put Calgary subdivisions uh, at the foothills of our Rocky Mountains. It's just, and that's, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Lethbridge as well. <laughs> that's right. Hi, my name is Henning Mundell. <clears throat> And by the way, I have lived in a mud hut. Bev and I are Rotarians. <laughs> um, and we have lived in a number of the countries you refer to, specifically Ethiopia. We lived in Kenya. Um, I'm intrigued with your various travels. Do you have a standard modus operandi for arranging for translators, security guards, whatever may be needed, depending on the country and region you're going to? Yeah, good question. You know, it's one of the things I've discovered. I've been to 17 different African countries, and I stopped counting at 50, and, uh, 50 trips to Africa, and I stopped counting several years ago. So I don't know how many times I've, I've actually been there now. And, uh, and, and many of these trips have been up to two months in length. Uh, I just, just finished a two-month trip about six weeks ago. So, and what I've discovered is that most people in the world are good people. You know, you always hear the bad stories because the media has done a great job of telling us the bad stories. Sorry. Uh, most of the media, not the ones here. <laughs> but seriously, you know, bad stories sell. Good stories don't. And, if, for instance, Rwanda. Right now, Rwanda is one of the best countries you could travel to in Africa. It's probably one of the safest. Uh, people are walking with a spring to their step. Houses are being rebuilt. Hotels are being refurbished. Kigali, the capital city, is stealing all of or a lot of the conferences that from traditional Nairobi, which used to be the, the conference capital of East Africa. Now Kigali is taking it over because who wants to get caught in two-hour traffic jams in Nairobi? Nairobi's other name is Nairobi. And... Uh, you know, in Kigali, I've, I've, you can walk around any time of the day or night and you feel right at home. It is just such an amazing country. And look where they were 20 years ago, lower than a snake's belly. And so it, it shows the indomitable spirit of the human primate to be able to do that, to, to, to strive for betterment uh, and an incredible fortitude uh, and ability to recover from unbelievable disaster that I hope we, ever, we never, ever experience. And they are promising themselves they'll never go through it again. And they're working hard. They've erased all of the tribalism in the country. Now they're all called Rwandanese. And uh, they've all got new uh, cards to uh, illustrate their birthright, which now, now no, nobody, nobody is a pygmy, nobody's a Hutu. Uh, they're all Rwandanese. And so you, you, the, in most of these countries, you know, I've, in all of the travel I've done, I've done a lot of solo travel with my wife. Um, we've only had one bad experience. I was only robbed once, and that was in Antananarivo in Madagascar. I was by myself. I was in a crowded street. It was too crowded for me. I had to get from point A to point B. I decided to go through some back roads to uh, make it faster. As soon as I got off to where a place there was nobody, all of a sudden 12 people came and 
pushed up against me, kids maybe 15 years old and adults maybe 60 years old. Right away, I knew what was happening. I was getting robbed and, uh, and pickpocketed. And so I tried to act like the, uh, the dominant baboon. <clears throat> and they all dissipated like, sand, like water into sand. But I looked down and every single pocket was inside out. And after a while, I thought, you know, what a nice way to get robbed. No punching, no knives, just steal your blind. And, and, but you think about all the places I've been in all these countries. My gosh, you know, and, and what do you hear about Africa? What do you hear about Ethiopia? What do you hear about Rwanda? You know, it's, it, it, really, the world is filled. I always say that the world is filled, especially when you get into the rural areas. Look, I always couch this. Any city is dangerous. Calgary's dangerous. Have you ever been on 3rd Avenue in Calgary at, after 10 o'clock at night? Dangerous place. Um, uh, I bet you downtown Lethbridge is dangerous now and again, too. But uh, in, it, 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 what I've always said is that when you get into the rural areas, which is where I spend most of my time, it's like meeting a farmer around many berries, Alberta. They're always ready for a good joke, a good laugh, and a cold beer, or in the case of Africa, a warm beer. And, you know, yeah, the language, uh, we always have local guides, and a lot of people can speak English now. It's really quite remarkable. And my wife speaks German down in Namibia. Very easy to get along down there. Um, you know, it's, Africa is quite a f uh, friendly place. And we've done a lot of travel in South America and other places, too, in Asia. And uh, the world really is an amazing, amazingly beautiful place, and I think we sometimes forget about that. Okay, next question. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. I'm going to bring you back closer to home, Brian. You've given us a bit of a hint with your comment on the Prime Minister's sense of humor. But personalities like you uh, can get close to him and talk to him. And I wonder whether you've done that or whether you have an inclination to do that in terms of the problems that the tar sands causes for conservation. And I wonder if you have what you've said to him, what his response has been, or if you haven't, what is your position on the situation? What should we be doing? <laughs> okay. Ah. <clears throat> Hi. My name's Brian. How do you like me so far? You know, that's a very difficult question to answer. Yes, I have had opportunities to chat with people, uh, but it's tough. There's no doubt about it. I think... You know, we elect these people, so we're really responsible for their decisions. So it's our fault, and I suppose that's a, a way to start. Uh, I think it's an educational process. I, I think that uh, there is a, a tidal wave coming of anti-carbon sentiment, and I think it's going to hit us all, and I think it's going to be within the next decade, and I think it's the young people that are entering the workforce now. You know, I've... I, I've always said that uh, we're very lucky we live in this democracy. We're very lucky we have the, the people we have in, in, in government. And so many government people I've met have been very good, very focused, very dedicated, and they want to do the right thing. It's the machine that they're in that's hard. And, uh, and that machine, I think, is, is being governed by people that have been there too long at the moment. So, I, But it's up to us to change that. I, I believe that I'm not very good at uh, getting involved in rallies and rabble-rousing and all that kind of stuff. I think my niche is to get people thinking about it. And, uh, and I like to celebrate nature. I, I, so what I've tried to do is try to celebrate what I see and what I do. I could fill your heads full of horrible concrete with all of the destruction I've seen, too. 
you know, coming across an elephant with no face. So there's a lot of bad out there. There's no doubt about it. But boy, oh boy, look what happened in 1988. We had had elephant populations, for instance, disappearing at 100,000 a year. They were going to be extinct by the year 2000. Fortunately, that didn't happen because in 1988, Time magazine had a big pile of ivory on fire on its front cover when Kenyatta burnt all the ivory. And uh, all of a sudden, the first world, i.e. Germany, the United States, Canada, uh, Japan, and a few others, uh, realized that when you buy ivory, you've got blood on your hands. And so all of a sudden, the bottom fell out of the ivory market. Ivory was virtually worthless. Now, in the last few years, everything's changed. Because Asia now has the money. And so now we've got to educate the Asians somehow. We've got to figure out a way to make it understood that at this rate, uh, we're not going to have elephants left in, in a matter of decades, probably even less. So we've, we've got serious issues ahead of us. There's no doubt about it. But uh, we did it once before with elephants, for an example. I think we can do it again. I just read yesterday that China crushed a bunch of ivory. And so that's very good. You know, they, it was a big display. I haven't found the details yet. So I've got to do a search on that and find out. I just read it in a little byline yesterday. That, that, so if China is doing public displays of crushing ivory, that, uh, that's very good. And maybe something's happening. The, 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 president, the president of uh, – I'm, I'm uh, sorry, Bev. I'll call him. Okay. We got Another message. News waiting. Okay. I don't know how to address you. My name is Frank J. Toth. Uh, I don't really know how to address you, sir. Honor, your honor, whatever. Hey, you works for me. The, the crowd you draw is the first time in my memory, I'm a little over 90, to see a crowd like this, okay? If oh, there's some you. way to, to introduce you to be presented the Nobel Prize of the world. <laughs> I, I'm very, very serious. Oh, thank you. Any, anyway, I just wonder, with our white knight just, uh, pi- just parachuted in Alberta, notably he was the ex-environmental minister of the federal government, the, the pre- prime minister you talked about, his buddy. Have you ever given him a chance, uh, an ear full of what he succeeded in doing in the tar sands and now going to all be a savior for, for Albertans. Well, you know, boy, that's, this is where, you, this is where I, I was a part of the Jane Goodall board for a period of time there. At least my wife was. I wasn't allowed to be because it would have been considered a conflict of interest. But we had one of our meetings in Ottawa, and we sat down with a bunch of people that were well-connected in Ottawa, and I realized how far west we are out here in Alberta. You know, we, we really don't have a, a direct line to the, to the decision-makers the way that we probably should. And, uh, and, and uh, I suppose what we need to do is have representatives that are thinking more environmentally uh, out east to get access to those those thinkers, those, those doers, the the political people that uh, that are actually doing something good. So that's that's going to be the trick. You. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Gary. Gary. Um, 
Uh, uh, Brian, uh, we have a couple of CDs by a guy called Rafi, writes children's songs. And one of them is uh, Jane, Jane, the Chimps Are Calling. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I've explained to our five-year-old why the chimps are calling Jane Goodall to say thank you. <clears throat> so he's uh, coming as an environmentalist. But it leads me to the question the, the, about the baboons and the chimpanzees. Uh, the population of baboons that you showed us in, uh, in Ethiopia, how is their population and are they threatened? And in 2014, secondly, how are the chimps doing in, um, in I guess, uh, farther south in Africa? Well, the chimps now exist in, what is it, they used to exist in something like 20 countries. They exist now, I think, in 11, if I'm not mistaken. Their numbers used to be 2 million 100 years ago. Now there's between 200 and 50,000 to 300,000. So their numbers have definitely gone down. Uh, and, and in Gombe, the park that Jane studies in, she, when she first got there in, in 1960, there was 150 chimps. But remember those 150 chimps in the three communities that are within that 10-square-mile uh, park, uh, they had access to other chimpanzee populations up and down Lake Tanganyika. Now it's an island, as, as so many wilderness areas are. They're islands. And uh, so the, the chimp, that 150 population, is now down to 90. So I- everywhere we look, we see population reductions. In Ethiopia, they're still holding with a good population of gelato baboons, but there's humans that live up at that elevation too. And they grow wheat and barley at that elevation. And if a troop of baboons, 300 strong, get into their crop, they can destroy the crop in a few hours. So kids are out there with whips, and they, whip the, they, they crack the uh, air with their whips to scare the baboons off their fields. Uh, and keep the baboons into the native grass. But the native grass isn't as good as the wheat fields. And so there's a real conflict there, just like we have in Alberta, with uh, comparative uh, analogies. Uh, so, but the, the good news is the government prevents anybody from killing the gelato baboons, and if you do kill one, you're in big trouble. So uh, they, they understand, the government understands, the value of the gelata as a species that's unique to the highlands of Ethiopia. The people that live there, though, are having conflicts. And so what's going to happen when the human population grows? That's a good question. I think we're just going to see more and more conflicts. But we're also going to see more and more need to get more organized to develop systems where the wildlife pays so that there's an opportunity to make money on wild areas and wild animal viewing. That's why I think tourism, if it's controlled, look, there's a double-edged sword to tourism too, but uh, tourism can work in a very positive way but it can have its negatives as well. Did I answer your question? Thank you. Next question. Thank you for your... Oh, I'm Everett Thomas. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I found those very nice pictures, and I like your philosophy. Uh, how can we expect the next generation to clean up on the damage we have done when there's only 5% of the, people, of the young people playing in the environment instead of 80, and 95% don't know that there is an environment, just like how our government acts. They seem like they, they haven't discovered the environment yet. They don't know it exists. I agree. It's a big deal. And I think we all need to think about that and think about the consequences of kids not getting outside and developing that love from the heart. I mean, what motivates you to save a landscape? It's usually it's, it's an internal motivation. It's something that drives you to make those decisions to save those areas. So we need to get people thinking about this. We need to talk about it. Those of you on Twitter, you need to tweet about it. Those of you with Facebook, you need to talk about it. Uh, 
I started to get concerned about this, so I started writing kids' books years ago. So this is now I'm going into my sales pitch. I brought, seriously though, I, I started writing kids' books for age 8 to 14. And the whole, I've written there, I've got five of them now. Uh, I have many of them here. They're already pre-signed. The fives, five, book of five are in a bundle for $40, or you can buy one book for $10. So if you buy all five, it's a deal. And they're already signed and they're already bundled, so it doesn't take long to go through that if you want. But the idea of that is to get kids to read about nature and to get excited about nature. And I've included Alberta stories, or at least Canadian stories, in most of those books so that, so that it brings it back home. So we get an international view, but also it brings it back home, just like I did with today's talk. But the whole idea is to get kids excited, and I think that's what we need to do. We need to get kids excited about the outdoors. We need to remind them why it's good. And the good news about this is that there's a, there a book written um, a few years back, probably 10 years ago now, uh, called Last Child in the Woods. And if, if, who here has read it? Anybody here? One, two, three, four? Good. But now, next time I come, I want to see everybody. And, and you can go online and just read the first chapter. I think, you know, you can get it that way too. So, or you can get a synopsis of what the book is about. Richard Louv, L-O-U-V-E, is the guy who wrote the book. He went into classrooms all over North America, well, specifically in the United States, and asked kids, where do you like to play? Overwhelmingly, the answer was indoors. The reason was because it was where the electrical outlets were. So there's, there's an indication. But Richard Louvre talks about the importance of getting outside and what it does for your self-esteem, for your health, uh, re- the reduction of obesity, the reduction of hyperactivity. You know, if I was born in today's culture, I probably would have been fed that, those pills that they talk about to reduce hyperactivity because I would have been considered to be out, out of control. I mean, I remember sitting in school and looking out the window and saying, I can't wait to get out and go and play in the woods. My life was my fort. And in Richard Lou's book, Last Child in the Woods, a whole chapter is dedicated to building forts in the woods and why that's important. You know, it, it, it establishes uh, a thought pattern that gets you to calculate how much it takes to put a nail in to hold that piece of wood on the tree so you don't fall off and break your neck. And, you know, we all got cut and we all hurt ourselves and we all got slivers and we all stepped on nails uh, in, in, in used wood because we all raided the garbage dump to find good wood so we could build our fort. But boy, oh boy, it got us outside. It got us in the woods. And I had some, so many young experiences in those woods watching woodpeckers just a meter away hiding in the forest until nightfall, the crows coming in and on and on it goes. That's what we need to do. We need to get, we need to get back to basics and we need to get kids outside. So, and the books are one way, so you guys are welcome to buy those, because I don't want to carry them back to Calgary. And also, uh, if you want to be totally selfish about it, my belief in tourism, I've been working with a company in, in Calgary called Civilized Adventures. We've been leading trips all over the world. That's how I managed to do this. Believe me, I don't have a lot of money. I just have other people take me on their trip. And so I've got, I've got some pamphlets here. You can help yourself, and I have more if we run out of Before those. we have our last question, there was a a table here, who wanted to know how they could donate to the, the HIPPO project. Well, the, the Calgary Zoo is, um, uh, is the, the fellow who's taken over my job is a fellow by the name of, of Dr. Axel Mordenschlager. I call him Dr. M. Uh, but if you wanted to donate to the HIPPO sanctuary specifically, uh, you put that in, the, uh, you know, the, in that little text message area on the lower left of your check. Uh, or there's a way of doing it online. 
but make sure you say this is for conservation outreach, okay? So if you do that, make sure you say conservation outreach via Dr. M. And then you got it. To the right. Calgary Zoo. Yeah, it goes to the Calgary Zoo, but via conservation outreach. And you can, you can find all that stuff online. It's very simple. They even have a way of, of, of doing it with your credit card online. I just had a look the other day on the website to see what they have now. And so, but make sure you write that you want it for conservation outreach. Mary Shillington, uh, Brian, thank you very much. And it was great to share a table with you and hear some other stories. Um, you've talked about places you've been. Is there some place that you haven't been to that you really want to go to? You know, yeah, what about Lethbridge? Actually, I've never been quite a bit of exploring. In the old days, they had the motorcycles that used to crisscross the 77 by all those establishments back in Switzerland. I covered all this out in the southern, off the main road, and my motorcycles camped in wonderful places. I probably camped on some of your land. But uh, I think, you know, from an international perspective, I want to spend a month or so in Mongolia sometime soon. So that's high on my list. I love these wide open spaces. Maybe that's my prairie upbringing. Uh, but, and I love high elevations. And, and, uh, so, and I like being in remote locations. And the people there, too, apparently are quite fascinating. So that's, that's one place that I have in my sight lines. But, uh, but it, you know, there's, the world is such a beautiful place. And there are so many places to go and see. So... It's, and, and, you know, I've been to Zimbabwe. I've probably been to that country 20 times, and, uh, and I still keep finding new things. This last trip that I was there, you know, Mugabe went crazy for 10 years, so I had to ignore the country for a while. And, uh, but I, I took a group back in there just a few months ago, and, and I think I mentioned it to some people at the table here, but uh, a trip to Zimbabwe, you get into the environment. You get into the ecosystem because you become a part of it because you get out on foot. Uh, in Kenya, it's different. You're in a vehicle looking out the window, but that's good because if you got out and walked, you'd probably be bait. So it makes sense. And also, you don't get wildebeest migrations in Zimbabwe like you do in East Africa, so there are certain reasons why East Africa is very good. But these countries are worthwhile exploring, that's for sure. You guys have been a great audience. Thank you very, very much. Join with me in thanking Brian.